Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, today's guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We have a twofer tonight. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Paul Carson and philosopher Dr. Tony Flood, both professors at North Dakota State University and both previous guests on Dr. Doctor. Two for the price of one tonight, Tom. <laughs> we like since, that. Since late March, more, more and more Americans have been asking the question, is the treatment of this pandemic really getting to be worse than the disease? And there have been kind of two competing strains of arguments that can be roughly characterized as utilitarian and libertarian. And while we assume that the proponents of both of these are well-meeting and they do have some really good points, they risk missing some important aspects of what is best for human beings as described by Catholic social teaching. You know, throughout the pandemic, since we first talked with Paul in early March, we've been talking frequently about this question are the unintended harms of sheltering in place, of closing businesses and schools, limiting visits to physicians and travel restrictions worse than the harm either being done or potentially done by COVID-19? And Paul suggested bringing on board philosopher Tony Flood, with whom he wrote another paper on uh, whether or not there is a moral obligation to receive vaccines. He brought Tony Flood on. And the three of us wrote a paper together for the Catholic Medical Association Journal called the Lineker Quarterly. It's been accepted, it's in press, and will probably be online uh, later this month. And, and this is a, a 9,000-word uh, data-driven paper. And believe it or not, that was actually cut down from what it, what it had been. Uh, but there's three main parts of that paper, and we want to bring it to you in our voices instead of just in print. Uh, the first part of the paper, and this was Paul's expertise, uh, what do we know about the harms of COVID-19, uh, including comparing it to the influenza? The second part, which was uh, my main focus, was what do we know about the unintended consequences of the lockdown, including increases in deaths and disease due to unemployment, social isolation and loneliness, avoiding doctor's visits, uh, etc. And the third part of the paper, which was Tony's expertise, is examine the above two sets of facts through the lens of Catholic social teaching to help develop public policy and show how Catholic social teaching better accounts for human dignity and the common good than either utilitarianism or libertarianism. Yeah, I was very excited to see you guys working together on this because so much of what you see on the media and really just in conversations, a lot of these issues have become very polarizing. I think people are still scared and also kind of sick and tired of how long this has been carrying on and may continue to carry on. The Catholic Church has got a unique role because we're both and people, right? And so we can hopefully find a way forward that makes sense in charity to everyone. So Paul, Tony, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Let's get down to business. Paul, start with a brief review of COVID-19. How bad is it? What are the key things you want people to know about how bad the disease is? Uh, well, uh, good to be back with you, Tom and Andrew. And Andrew, I applaud you if you made it through all 9,000 words of that, uh, that paper. <laughs> um, just, just light reading. Is that yeah. a plenary indulgence or a partial indulgence? <laughs> there you go. It's a big one. Um, well, I, I have to say that I hope it's becoming a lot clearer to everyone that COVID-19 is, as we've actually discussed on your prior shows, uh, pretty bad. And it really needs to be taken seriously. Uh, almost 12 million cases now worldwide, over a half a million deaths worldwide. Uh, the U.S. continues to lead the world in numbers of total cases, numbers of new cases, and numbers of total deaths. Um, so I really hope that we're kind of past the point of people, um, you know, talking about it's no different or no worse than uh, uh, the seasonal flu. Uh, we're now at over 130,000 deaths in the U.S., far outstripping uh, any bad flu season. <laughs> By the way, Paul, isn't yep. that uh, in agreement with those early estimates from the University of Washington that everybody made fun of when they were predicting 140,000 deaths by August 1st? That's correct. And, uh, you know, some other of the models kind of uh, suggested left unfettered. Um, in, in, in our own paper, we talk about this as well. I mean, we really, it's not unrealistic to think about a quarter of a million deaths or more. Um, and now we're seeing... Uh, uh, you know, the, the rise in cases in the Sun Belt, which we can maybe get to more, uh, more in a bit. But 
Um, this is a very serious virus. This is a real pandemic, uh, and uh, we are not through it all the way yet. You know, one of the things that I, I get to hear from a lot of folks is that we don't know what we're talking about as medical professionals, public health officials, because first it was no mask, then it was masks. First, it's not a big deal. That's a big deal. I've had people tell me that this is all a hoax and uh, it's just being done because, you know, of the media hype and political consequences and stuff. What would your response be, Paul, to, to those folks who maybe just haven't seen, seen it in their life yet? Right. You know, I think, um, I think the masking issue hurt us, uh, unfortunately, uh, because there was the messaging at the beginning that you don't need masks. And now we've got a big push out there from most public health entities that we all should be wearing masks. And I think that made public health lose a little uh, credibility. Uh, I think the initial messages were really based on the fact that we had somewhat weak evidence about um, masks being able to protect individuals in the community, especially with things like cloth masks. And there was uh, an appropriate desire to pre preserve the limited stores of surgical masks and N95 masks for healthcare workers. And that's really what the message should have been, that we need to save those masks for where they're most needed in the healthcare system, for the people that need them to do their job. But it was wrong to suggest that they, they aren't likely to help the common person. That message really never made sense. But I don't think, you know, I just can't see how people can still think it's a hoax or just media hype when we've seen multiple cities now, New York, Houston, San Antonio, Phoenix, uh, with their ICUs and bed capacities stretched to the breaking point. Uh, I just read an article uh, from yesterday noting there's 44 uh, hospitals in Florida now with no further ICU bed capacity because it's all being taken up by COVID cases. Um, I personally watched with horror this virus tear through the nursing home where I'm a medical director and in the span of about three weeks it infected a quarter of our staff and killed almost 10% of our residents. So it's very real to me. It's uh, not a hoax. And I, I actually don't think it's going to be very long before all of us know someone or some family that's affect, been affected by this. Well, Tony, let's go to you. You've got a different take on this and you'll have an interesting take because you're not medical. You're a a highly intelligent member of the non-medical community. But um, last week I was talking to Barbara Golder. Now, she's the editor of the Lineker Quarterly, where our article is being published. And she really liked the article because she said one of the beauty, beautiful things of Catholic social teaching is that it doesn't yield black and white answers, but it gives a mechanism to determine an answer in the face of widely changing circumstances. And boy, do we have those now. So if we continue to see an increase in number of cases, as we are seeing, and when we planned this episode, we weren't seeing this huge increase, but, but it's here. How would you recommend that various state governors apply uh, the principles to the cold, hard facts that we know? Well, it begins with understanding the principles. Um, you know, the nice thing is the Catholic social teaching is a framework. It's a well-articulated ethical social approach to how we should weigh various risks, look at benefits, and come to informed conclusions. The other nice thing about Catholic social teaching, I want to mention before jumping to your question directly, sure, is you know you hear the word Catholic and you immediately think, okay, scripture, divine revelation, <laughs> this is something just for Catholics. As I think we'll talk about it over the course of the next 45 minutes or so, the four key pillars of Catholic social teaching on the dignity of the human person, the nature of the common good, solidarity, subsidiarity. These are very philosophical principles in the sense that they're reasonable. Yet you don't need to necessarily be Catholic to minimally understand their content, but in even other, more so. In other words, if you went up to the nearest literate person on the street and talked about these principles without the term Catholic, but just what they mean, you think most people would agree? Yes. Yes. I, I, in fact, <laughs> they would probably agree more readily if you didn't use the adjective Catholic in front of right. them, because um, there would be no defenses up. Be like, well, of course, dignity, common good. Th these are things we can all agree to. Now, of course, the larger context here is the church understands the ultimate rationale, the ultimate justification for these principles in light of revelation in Christ. 
um, and we Catholics can attend to those deeper foundations and really draw meaning from them. But I don't think we need to hammer that part when making arguments uh, with respect to the public good and these public health matters. And I think our paper does a really good job of actually focusing on those philosophical aspects. Tony, for, for the listeners who, who can't call them to mind right off, could you give us a rundown of the, the main pillars? Okay, so the four pillars of Catholic social teaching, the, it begins with the dignity of the human person. And these are not arbitrarily ordered. Um, the dignity of the human person is first. It's foundational. Um, that the human person is the sort of entity that can't be treated in certain ways, um, in, in a rightful way. In other words, there are objectively bad ways of treating human beings, and our dignity calls for certain responses and certain attitudes that must be respected. Secondly, we're not just mere individuals. We're individuals in community. We're individuals in communion. And that's where the common good is going to come in, the second principle. And then out of the common good is solidarity, that we have responsibilities toward one another insofar as we're not just these isolated individuals. We all exist together. And then lastly, subsidiarity, which we'll talk about a little bit more. It's probably the least intuitive of the four principles, but it has to do with more localized decision-making and the benefits there uh, connected. So, for example, state departments of health have the legal authority for public health measures, not the national level or the CDC. So that would be a concrete example of subsidiarity within this pandemic. Right, right. I think before going on to any more um, deep topics of how to apply this, we need to look at the other side of the equation. Paul talked about the harms. You talked about the mechanism we're gonna look at making decisions, but we have to look at not only the harms of COVID, but what were some of the harms of applying, you know, the, the lockdown, uh, the social distancing, closing of businesses and that. And, um, you know, that was my part of the paper. I mean, just to be brief, I mean, unemployment. It's amazing for every 1% increase in the unemployment rate, there's a 1% to 1.6% increase in suicide rate, which means another 500 to 750 suicides per year per 1% increase. For each 1% increase in unemployment, there's a 3.3% increase in drug overdose death. So that's an extra 22,000 deaths annually for 1% increase in unemployment. There's a 35% increase in heart attack for each 1% increase in unemployment. And then we saw that uh, medical visits were reduced. Uh, over, you know, end of March through April, there were 40% less people going nationally for both heart attack and for stroke evaluation to hospitals. I mean, Andrew, there, do you think there were 40% less heart attacks and strokes? Right, and, that, and that's been one of the biggest mysteries that I've, I've kind of wondered about is what happened to these people? Everybody's just kind of winging it at home, and then at some point, folks are going to trickle in with much more advanced disease when we could have helped them. Uh, and then, of course, you know, just educationally, e-learning is far less effective for students. Uh, many students are not getting healthy lunches, which is sometimes their only healthy meal. Child abuse hotlines increased 17% in April. I, I don't have data for after that. Mental health hotlines increased, you know, tenfold in uh, March and April. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned that, uh, you know, substance abuse increased. You said you've even seen that in your practice. I have. I've, I've seen several patients who have come in, and I've been seeing them for a long time, but substance abuse is something that rears its ugly head when, especially when we're talking about alcohol that people may use socially, put, put people at home for three months and uh, frequently with nothing else to do and tell them to stay at home. And they're one of the few places open are the liquor stores. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people searching out care for that. In addition to the mental health issues of anxiety and depression, I mean, mental health, I think, is one of the biggest things that's been suffering. Uh and then it, I think it amazed all three of us co-authors that both isolation physically and sense of loneliness both have an increased risk of mortality about 30% above, you know, age and sex match controls. I mean, that, that was shocking. And as shocking as that is, I have a family member that will probably die today because of that, who just gave up on living in a nursing home, stopped eating and drinking last week, and 
thankfully received last sacraments a few days ago, but just gave up. I mean, it, it's so, so sad. Um, this one website, Evidation, it's called, tracked 185,000 volunteers throughout the pandemic and showed that in early April, a third of them had to miss or cancel a previously scheduled medical appointment, and almost two-thirds of them were unable to make contact with their physician via video, phone, text, email, and simply abandoned their care. 200 cancer treatment protocols were suspended, you know, nationwide. And the list goes on and on. So there are a lot of indirect harms. And this is not even the economic harms. You These know, are just the I, physical. Paul? Yeah, just to comment on a couple of those points. One is if... Uh, if listeners would like to sort of play a little bit of amateur epidemiologist, uh, just Google search CDC excess deaths. Yes. And you can look at the U.S. and you can look at your own state and you can look and see how many um, they track uh, the numbers of deaths by state uh, over the previous five years. And then they compare that with the current year. And you can see in most places um, there was a big jump in deaths in March through uh, up through June here. Places like New York, it was extremely uh, high. But what's interesting about that is they also break it down by how many of those excess deaths were directly attributable to COVID, and it's the majority, but there's a chunk there that aren't attributed to COVID. And it is really one of two things. It's either COVID cases that aren't being counted, or it's deaths from other things related to what we're doing to manage COVID, like not going into the ER for your chest pain, not going into the ER for that, you know, TIA, um, uh, you know, early stroke signs. And um, I think as we start drilling down a bit more on this data, we're going to find that there were measurable uh, deleterious effects from missing out on, on some routine medical care. And similar to your story, Tom, I, you know, I just had an anecdotal experience running into a, a friend after church, who's uh, um, a widow and she was talking about, you know, buying a new dog because she emphatically stressed how very depressed she was becoming. Very, very depressed. And, and, and you could just see the distress in her face and how hard this was on her and how difficult and she had been furloughed from work. And, uh, and I, I just got a sense, boy, I don't have an idea how hard this has been on some people. And uh, it, it was very clear that this, this had affected her deeply. Uh, and with that, we're going to go to the medical trivia question of the day before ending the first segment of the show, because we have a lot more deep things we want to talk about. So the category for today's question is, unsurprisingly, Catholic social teaching. So today we're talking about how to apply this to a complex system that includes a worldwide virus, various levels of government, and billions of individual human beings. The question relates to where the concept that we today call Catholic social teaching arose. And it's commonly said to come from a document written in 1891 by Pope Leo XIII that begins with the statement that the spirit of revolutionary change, which has long been disturbing the nations of the world, should have passed beyond the sphere of politics and made its influence felt in the cognate sphere of practical economics is not surprising. That's a mouthful. The name of the document is shorter. What is the Latin name of this document? The English title is On the Condition of Workers or On Capital and Labor. But what is the name of this famous document written in 1891 by Pope Leo XIII? You're going to have to stick around till the end of the show to find out the answer. But we'll be back with more on Dr. Doctor here from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio in just a few minutes. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking today about the new article coming out in the Lineker Quarterly dealing with this pandemic and is the cure worse than the disease, you know? And so one of the things that we wanted to dive right into was the NPIs, the non-pharmaceutical interventions that have been encouraged to slow the spread of this virus. And I wonder, Paul, could you kind of outline those a little bit for us? Sure. So, you know, we're all waiting with bated breath for pharmaceutical interventions, a, a wonder drug that'll treat the virus or a vaccine that will prevent the virus. But short of that, we've had to implement uh, long-standing, well-recognized things called um, non-pharmaceutical interventions that are the tools of public health. Um, and some of those are traditional and some of those have been a little bit uh, non-traditional with uh, their approach to, in this current pandemic. So the, the most common ones are 
in the tool belt of public health are case findings. So you go out and you try and find cases with testing. Um, that's why testing has been such a, an important uh, push by um, uh, president and most uh, state uh, public health departments and governors. Um, so you find those cases and then <clears throat> uh, isolate them so that they hopefully can't infect other people. And then you do contact tracing to trace down who they've been, who they have exposed. And so that you quarantine them, the people who have been exposed until you see whether or not they develop uh, the infection. So this is trying to separate people who have the infection and people who might have the infection from the healthy population so that it doesn't spread further. And those are and pretty non-controversial. Those are pretty non-controversial. Those I think everybody agrees like that's, that should be our main push. Everybody should be uh, working hard. And like if, if you have any symptoms at all, go get tested. The testing is in a much better place than it was a few months ago. Get tested. Um, then comes the things like voluntary social distancing. So uh, talking about people to try and maintain adequate distance from other people, restricting gatherings and their and the sizes of those gatherings. Then comes the uh, uh, the more restrictive measures like sheltering in place. So shelter in place orders is a stricter version of social distancing to more rigorously diminish those potential contacts between infected and the susceptible. Then a step uh, kind of akin to that is travel restrictions. So preventing travel to or from specific uh, geographic areas where there's a higher prevalence. In some travel states right now are requiring quarantine for people coming from certain other states. Right, yeah, and my wife and I were just talking about uh, popping north to Canada for a vacation and we can't cross the border. They're not taking Americans, I don't think, uh, still. So um, there are travel restrictions that are in place. Um, at various times, there's been travel screening where you get temperature and symptoms checked, you know, when you try and cross the border or land somewhere. And then come things like school closures, business closures. And then we saw, I, I think for the first time, I can uh, recognize it as restricting non-urgent medical care. Like yes. actually trying to say, let's... Uh, you know, uh, theoretically prevent non-COVID-19 patients from acquiring the disease in a medical care setting and then preserving our... So that lays equipment. out the NPIs very well. And it looked like we achieved our initial goal of flattening the curve, not overwhelming hospitals, ICUs. But now it seems like there's a second wave or a first wave that never ended. Why is this happening, Paul? Why are this huge increase in cases? Uh, I don't think we completely know, but we have, I think we have some ideas on this. Um, clearly, many states have, have started to restrict many, or started to remove many of those restrictions. They're opening up businesses, opening up restaurants and bars. They've removed the shelter in place orders, um, masking, uh, you know, even in our own diocese went from, you know, highly encouraged, you know, re masks put at the back of the church to now, do it if you want. We do encourage it, but, you know, in a bolded statement uh, was not mandatory. And, and we've seen a marked diminishment of, of the, the masking. And um, I think, uh, I do think there might be something to the weather. I, I think the humidity may have helped us a little bit, like in the more temperate parts of the upper Midwest here. And I wonder about the Sunbelt states you know, now it's the, the hot season for them. So they're, I suspect, doing much more uh, activities indoors in air conditioning where it's closed spaces, drier air. Yes. Um, I, I think that may, may have something to do with it. And if you look, the one thing I like on the University of Washington IHME website where they do modeling on COVID, they, they actually have actual data of GPS mobility by cell phones in the U.S. And so you can see how much we're moving around and doing stuff. And like in my state, you know, we dropped down to almost 50% reduction in our mobility and moving around. And we're all the way back to baseline now. And, uh, and it's quite variable from state to state. Uh, and I, so it, it can't all be ascribed to increased testing. No, I, I think it's clearly not all ascribed to that because um, when you look at, uh, for example, the states where it's really spiking, Texas, Arizona, Florida, um, California, California, um, they are increasing their testing, but the percent positivity is markedly increased. They're, they're looking at 10, 15, 20, 25% test positivity in some of these places. And that's, that's not just finding the straggler cases out there. This is a surge, and now it's showing up in their hospitals. That's the real proof of the pudding. Does it seem, Paul, like 
all these interventions that we've done really did a great deal of good. I mean, how, how much do you think we prevented? I think there's no doubt that those measures did a great deal of good. There was an article that was just published uh, about a month or so ago in Health Affairs that you know made the point that unfettered, this virus grows at, with exponential growth in, in a fairly short uh, cycle time. So you get a lot of people uh, infected within a short period of time if you don't do anything. Um, and they estimated that with the most restrictive of the measures, shelter-in-place orders, that we probably avoided up to 10 times the number of cases uh, that we would have had by the end of April had we not done those. And they estimate that with the other measures like uh, school closures, uh, business closures, encouraging masking, et cetera, that we, may, we probably avoided up to 35 times more cases. Now, I think the big question is, is which of those is the most efficacious and is the most restrictive ones, the ones that cause those harms that Tom just outlined, are they necessary? Are all of those necessary? Or can we get, you know, enough juice for the squeeze with some of the less restrictive ones? So which would, brings us to Tony. How do we answer that question, applying Catholic social teaching principles to the data that we have? Um, and there's one further principle I didn't outline, um, and it's the principle of double effect, which I'm going to talk about momentarily. Catholic social teaching, like utilitarianism, stresses proportionality that anytime we're engaged in a course of action where there are rationally foreseeable benefits, yet there are also associated risk, you need to proceed with caution and you need to think proportionately. Is the good outcome going to outweigh the bad? Um, and again, th this is not unique to co Catholic social teaching. Um, so, you know, you use a basic medical example. If I have an ingrown toenail, I might come to you, the doctor, and say, can you help me? And you say, sure. And you amputate my toe. <laughs> you know, yeah, that took care of the pain, but, but. <laughs> um, it, it's not a proportionate response. The difference between Catholic social teaching and utilitarianism is, while both have proportionality, utilitarianism doesn't have any actions that are considered inherently wrong. Right. I mean, the end justifies the means. So any means is on the table. For Catholic social teaching, that is not the case. There are moral absolutes. There are certain, and again, it goes back to individual dignity. If an action necessarily undermines human dignity in a very palpable sense, that's going to be a forbidden course of action. We can't go there. So, Tony, let's let's make this concrete. For example, if we said let's let all the kids go back to school, no social distancing, usual stuff, so that they will get infected with the virus. That would be using them in an inappropriate way, wouldn't it? Yes. Thank I you. mean, that last sentence is really what sells it there, right? Um, if we adults are using the kids to build up the herd immunity right. um, without any real sense of you know, what's in it for them, um, that, that would be a problem. Go ahead. Um, so the principle of double effect comes in where we're still going to have proportionality, but we're also going to take into consideration that some actions are just forbidden from the start. Now, what we really try to do in this paper is to show that placing a sheltering in place order or removing one wouldn't necessarily violate um, a person's dignity, right? Because the idea would be, wouldn't it just necessarily be the case that if you're removing a lockdown, you're exposing vulnerable people to infections, they're going to get infected, they're going to die. So therefore, this why are we even having a moral discussion? You keep the shelter in place as long as possible. And what we try to do in the paper is say, now, shelter in place orders can be justified, and they're, you know, as Paul is just talking about, there's positive results. But where the principle of double effect comes in is as long as we're not using the vulnerable as a means, right? So if we're reopening the economy for the sake of jobs and for the sake of socialization and the other goods that come about through human contact, it's not as if we're infecting vulnerable people as a means to do that. We're tolerating it as a negative side effect. We don't like it, um, but we think that it fits under proportionality that it's not going to be such a staggered number, a staggering number that opening is taken off the table as uh, the starting point, if and that makes you, sense. You could probably give a, an example in the, the other kind of opinion, the libertarian opinion as well, 
where these things are not necessarily done just because people are trying to exert control of, of some kind, but we are tolerating these real losses of individual daily freedoms for something that's greater, a greater good, short term to prevent something, right? Right. And that's the, you know, we, I guess I was just talking about in terms of utilitarianism. Uh, you know, the libertarian position has been fairly simple throughout this whole pandemic, right? That all of these actions, all of these measures that we're talking about, these NPIs, if they're mandated, they're overstepping, right? Because they're infringing on my individual liberty and I'm under no moral obligation to follow them. Um, and that's where we've seen the protest um, to the to the MPIs taking place from that libertarian mindset. That sounds um, like like uh, freedom with no responsibility, which you know it go together. It doesn't have the proportion clause that both Catholic social teaching and, for that matter, utilitarianism has, because at some point you need to say, well, yes, of course, protecting individual freedoms is a good thing, um, but if we're talking about things that don't inherently violate the dignity of the human person, like wearing a face mask, for instance. You know, now we have to take into account that, yeah, we're not just going to require that for the sake of requiring it, but if there are proportionate good reasons to do so, then our obligations to the to the common good and solidarity with other people seemingly offer a pretty tight moral justification for going that route. And Tony, with that comment, we're going to take our second break in the show and get back to specifically look at masks as an NPI here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Welcome back to the third segment of this show. We are discussing a paper called COVID-19 Policymaking in a Country Divided. A Path Toward Unity Through Catholic Social Teaching. So one of the hot-button subjects is the wearing of masks. Paul, you have a number of thoughts on masks. Start where you like. Sure. It's been really interesting to me to see how something like a mask or wearing a mask can divide our country or polarize or follow. And it, and it actually, there's now a couple studies out showing that it falls along political party lines, uh, which just makes no sense to me. But um, I, I think in the sort of framework of what uh, Tony outlined earlier, sort of a libertarian mindset versus a utilitarian mindset, you know, I think the libertarian in us says, don't tell me what to do, I'll wear what I want to wear, and I'll take my risks as I see them. Um, the thing about what we, what we know about masks uh, and, and what we're learning more and more about them is the, the evidence for uh, personal protection, how they protect me from inhaling the virus, uh, especially the cloth masks and to some extent the surgical masks, it honestly is fairly weak. Um, and, and so when we really have true uh, airborne pathogens in the hospital setting, our healthcare workers wear the N95 masks. Those do uh, have good evidence of protection. Um, both directions protection. Both directions, yep. Uh, Paul, maybe you know, a way to think about it is in the winter when you go into an office like Andrew's family practice office, who's wearing the masks? those who are coughing. The mask isn't for them, it's for others. Go with that. Right. So uh, I think what we, what we are increasingly you know, trying to help people understand is that by wearing a mask, it's really an act of charity. That Since we know that 40 to 50% of people who are infected, at least 40 to 50%, it might even be higher than this, are without symptoms. So uh, if you're without symptoms out there talking, singing, coughing, uh, and spreading the virus, Wearing that mask blocks those medium to larger respiratory droplets. And if you want a visual of this, I mean, if we you do, want, we do, Paul. How do we get it? Maybe through and Tom uh, some videos that uh, from some engineering uh, professors and students uh, that that very uh, nicely uh, demonstrate when we talk, when we cough, when we sneeze, what do we eject out into the immediate environment around us? 
And those links to those videos are going to be on uh, the podcast website. I encourage people to go look at those. Um, another one is a link to a picture of a microbiologist who did a little experiment of like talking in front of a Petri dish, singing in front of a Petri dish, coughing in front of a Petri dish, and sneezing in front of a Petri dish with and without a mask. And when you see all the bacteria, now viruses don't grow on a Petri dish, but bacteria do. And that, so that's a surrogate for what we are spewing out when we do each of those things. And you see how much stuff grows on those Petri dishes with talking, singing, coughing, sneezing, and how they're not there when that person wears a mask doing the same thing. It, it was not only less, it was nothing. Yeah, you, was you see some marks on the singing right. and the talking. Those marks are just from where they swab the media. That's not growth of bacteria. So, so we don't have a big randomized placebo-controlled trial showing that you know masks uh, you know prevent the asymptomatic carrier from uh, spreading it to another person. But all you need to do is look at this, and you can infer this is really likely doing something. And and masks don't harm us. They don't uh, cause any. Uh, you know, problems. There's no health uh, adverse effects from them. Some people might get a little claustrophobic wearing them, you know, for long periods of time. But uh, when we're going to be in public spaces around a lot of other people indoors, it is an act of charity towards others to say, I know that I may have some small chance of carrying this virus without symptoms. I'm going to take this simple measure to protect you. I, I kind of equate it to washing your hands after using the restroom. I mean, <laughs> Isn't it the same idea? That's a charitable act, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. That's what I tell my kids. You know, I mean, a lot of times you got to, you got to teach them that, but it is, it's, it is for other people. You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys was I I get a lot of requests from people who, who have masks mandated uh, through their work or through some other thing that they need to do. And they're asking for a doctor note saying it's not safe for me to wear a mask. Should those ever be given under any circumstances? I can't think of one. I, I can't think of one. I suppose if you had somebody seeing Tom, you know, the dermatologist for some bad rash that they can't control because they're having a... Uh, we know, can control it for them. <laughs> we'll send all the notes to Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am really not aware of any, uh, you know, medical contraindication to wearing a mask. Yeah. Tony... Masks have been a flashpoint among certain Catholics and and going to Mass. How do we use the principles of Catholic social teaching to parse this? Um, It really comes down to, I think, the principle of solidarity in this case. Um, You know, solidarity arises out of the interconnectedness of our human nature. We're we're not these atomized individuals that live in isolation from other people. Um, And it's not merely that society, we just have to deal with other people because they're proximate to us. Rather, our lives are inextricably joined to other people. Um, You know, theologically, you look at that as the body of Christ, but but even philosophically, this idea that we're relational animals, um, we're relational beings. Um, And so it's not just a matter of rights. It's, it's also a matter of responsibilities to, to use the common language that we have responsibilities to others in the same way that we would expect others to have responsibilities toward us. Right? So if, you know, if I have, if, if, if I'm going to mass, for instance, with, with an elderly person who is vulnerable, I'm going to want those around me to wear a mask to protect that person, right? And, and I think most of us would, you know, think the same thing. Uh, and in fact, I think that's a good way in of just explaining to somebody, here's why I want you to wear a mask. If, if this was, if you had a vulnerable family member, you would want them protected. That's all I'm asking. Um, and, and again, it, it's what really hammers at home is there's just no, there's no side effects to wearing a mask. Um, you know, all sorts of other MPIs, we can look at those side effects. That's the whole point of the paper with respect to those negative consequences uh, that came about. But in this case, what are they? Um, you know, as Paul just mentioned, they're, they're minimal at best. Tony, how, how can we use that last principle of subsidiarity that you mentioned earlier to help overusing these non-pharmaceutical interventions? Yeah, and, and that would probably go back to the, these larger shelter-in-place orders and such. Um, you know, Paul and I live in a part of the country that's much more sparsely populated than <laughs> other parts of the country. Um, so a one-size-fits-all approach 
is just, it's rarely a good idea, right? Um, and so subsidiarity wants to take into account the expertise of the local and state leaders to make informed decisions with, you know, so attending to the facts on the ground, so to speak. Um, if you have a sparse population, let them have more freedom in terms of, of these shelter-in-place orders. Whereas if you have a more densely populated area, well, of course, you're going to have to take additional precautions. It, it's not a matter of, well, the people in the densely populated parts of the country should, shouldn't have to take on these additional responsibilities that others do. It's just a matter of finding that what works best for everybody given the conditions on the ground. So, Paul, you help uh, advise your governor in your state. So these questions are, are real day-to-day -day things with you. In looking at the various NPIs, which ones can we potentially do without, live as normal life as possible, and contain this? I think the easier ones we should be, we should be all in so that we don't need to test the waters or invite the harder ones. So the easier ones of um, testing, case finding, contact tracing, get tested if you have any question that you might have this. Or if you're a contact, get tested if you have that ability in your state. We do in our state. I, I have a very low bar to be tested. And then if you happen to be a contact in your um, state public health or county public health has a contact tracer calling you saying, uh, looks like you were a contact of somebody. We'd like you to quarantine for 14 days. Cooperate with, with that. You know, that these are the easier, less restrictive things to try and control it that I think have a good chance of going very far. Masking, easy. Uh, um, we, we don't need to be uh, fighting about this. Let's do these uh, lower bar ones so we don't have to invite the higher ones. And, I, and Paul, last week, the Surgeon General made a comment that I just loved. A mask is a symbol of freedom. Masks mean freedom. Freedom to do things that we might not have been able to do before. That kind of resonated with me. Yeah, I like that too. I, I, as I think about, you know, I am so happy to be going to mass again. And there have been a number of well-publicized outbreak clusters with churches and church activities. I do not want my church closed down again or my diocese closed down again because we in our church or in our diocese are the cluster, the next big cluster outbreak. Amen. I can do that and still go to mass by distancing a bit, wearing a mask, being careful, considering how we engage with singing and, and that sort of thing. And we get to keep going. Th thank the Lord. Uh, let's, let's not invite having that uh, be shut down again by being the next big outbreak. You know, Paul, one of the things that comes up a lot, and I'm sure that the bishops, I, I don't envy them trying to figure this all out, is the, the other side of that, the dispensation for people who might be very high risk. Is this something that you you could see or or potentially recommend continuing for a while? I do. Uh, I really do. I think um, when you look at the potential mortality in people, for example, over the age of 75 or 80, where we're approaching 12, 15, 17% uh, chance of dying of this, um, I think the the risks of being in an indoor activity for you know an hour with people not that far from you, many of whom aren't masking, you know now, I, I think it's it's too risky for for the uh, at least it's something that I think the the people who are at higher risk, the elderly, the people with significant comorbidities, should be um, dispensated from. So Paul, let's continue marching through the NPI. So you had masking, social distancing. Is that something we should continue indefinitely? I, I think we should until we see that the epidemiology is showing like minimal to no cases or we've got a vaccine. And then how about the school closures, business closures, sheltering in place? Those are the tough ones. Those are the really, because those clearly start to rack up the harms to, not, you know, livelihoods as opposed to, you know, the potential harms from lives. And um, uh, I, I think schools are going to be a real experiment. And I'm on a committee that's trying to figure out how to reopen our universities this fall. And we're trying to figure out how to do this. And I think we're just going to have to see. We know that young children do seem to not be as susceptible to getting infection at all. So there was a debate about that at first. The, the data, I think, is stacking up that children actually don't get it as often. Um, 
And then when they do get it, it's the vast majority of the time much milder. So I think it's, it's okay to test the waters with, you know, school opening and see, see how we do. Um, uh, business closures, uh, you know, back to that subsidiarity, I, I just had a conversation this morning. Uh, you know, we are seeing a spike in our, my county, which is now spilling over into some of our nursing homes. But we have counties in North Dakota that haven't had a case yet. I don't think they need to be thinking at all about, you know, closures or uh, um, restrictions. We might need to start thinking about our bars and our restaurants, which have been open, opening up again. We may need to be thinking about that as things start to spike again. And, and that, I think that can be subsidiarity county by county, not, not only state by state. Do you think we can do it without sheltering in place again? I don't know. I, I, that is in my prayers regularly. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that shelter in place work. I mean, when you have everybody sure. restricted to being at home, you, you're going to stop transmission. Is it necessary? That's the $64 million question. And how about restricting medical care? I think we should be a lot slower to do that this next round. I think we need to not pull the trigger on that until we see the hospitals getting stretched. Um, I, I, I am very concerned that we led to um, very tangible in, indirect harms by people being afraid to go into the ER, afraid to go to their clinic visits, those clinics stopping quotes, non-essential care. I think we need to be much more cautious about doing those. Tony, we have two and a half minutes left. What final principles, comments would you like to lay out, especially based on the last thing Paul was saying about the various NPIs? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that to go back to the start of the show, right? I mean, we do need to be mindful of all of the potential harms from the restrictive NPIs. I mean, there's just no two ways about that. That we have, to, in, in order to assess proportionality correctly, if we're going to lose, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 20,000 people to these other sorts of deaths that would not have occurred, at, you know, without a shelter in place, but we have to we have to factor that in, um, and and so I know I know that muddies the water, right? I mean, I mean, we want just a clear, direct answer, and this is the problem. We're, we just it's very hard to have that. Um, I think Catholic social teaching certainly provides a, a very good framework. Um, it gives there's a nimbleness to it that it that can it can assess these these sorts of questions. Um, and come to well-reasoned conclusions. But at the same time, I don't think we're going to have any true sort of knockdown. This is the obvious thing that we have to right. do. Thank you, Tony. Paul, 30 seconds, final comments you'd like to make. Uh, you know, Tom, you said a, a while back we need a better dashboard that has all yes. of these things. We need to work on that better dashboard. In the meantime, again, I just admonish everybody, let's do the easier things to do so that we hope to God and pray to, to the Lord that we don't have to face doing the, the harder and more deleterious things. And Paul Amen. means by dashboard, not just number of cases or hospitalizations or deaths, but how everybody is being affected indirectly by what we're doing to treat COVID. And that's where Paul brought up the idea of the excess mortality as a potential surrogate for all the harms being done. Paul, Tony, thank you for doing a spectacular job in this interview. Listeners, please find this article when it's available later this month. Lineker Quarterly website, COVID-19 policymaking in a country divided. We'll be back to sum it up in a moment. And we're back with Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemia Radio with the medical trivia question. Yes, and that was basically what is the document that started the modern concept of Catholic social teaching that Pope Leo XIII wrote in 1891? And the name of it is Rerum Novarum. Rerum, R-E-R-U-M, Novarum, N-O-V-A-R-U-M, which literally translated would be on new things. That's how they translated revolutionary change. It's worth reading. It's easy to understand, especially if you read the English version instead of the Latin. <laughs> yes, and I think, you know, Catholic social teaching impacts or should impact so much of our lives and how we make decisions, especially when we're talking about public policy that is confusing and people disagree about it. I, I for one, I was really happy to hear kind of from the horse's mouth, yourself included, Tom, 
everything you guys put into this article and I'm excited to see it in print soon. And uh, we want to mention again those links that Paul Carson found that really show in a visual way uh, what a mask blocks, even for people who are asymptomatic. Because even normally when we're talking, there are different sized particles coming out of our mouths. And because about half of people are asymptomatic with the disease, they have been shown to be just as infectious as those who have symptoms of the disease. So it makes sense to block what's coming out of our mouths from potentially hurting someone else. And I, I really like the point Paul brought up that the better we do with things like the masks, even though most of us, myself included, find it very annoying to have to wear one all the time, the better we do with that, the more likely we can continue going to church and proceed back towards a normal life sooner than later. Exactly. We can prevent those more onerous NPIs, the lockdown, the business closures, the closing of mass. So I think, like Paul does, wearing a mask is really an act of charity toward others. And I also like his idea, go to the CDC website, just search excess deaths. You'll see where you can search nationally or by state. Uh, it really helps show you the effect that has happened in this pandemic. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. We hope you found something that is, is beneficial to you in your life. We're happy that our show is not only the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, but it's also an award-winning one. It's heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, and we ask you, please share the good news of our show. If you benefit from it, let a friend listen to us, and uh, be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. And please be sure to send us questions or tell us something that you heard on Dr. Doctor that you wanted to know more about. A lot of these things are confusing and controversial, and we love to get your opinions. You can find us on your favorite podcast app or RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where I'm Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.